0: Welcome to On the Issues with Michelle Goodwin at Ms. Magazine, a show where we report, rebel, and tell it like it is. On this show, we center your concerns about rebuilding our nation and advancing the promise of equality. Join me as we tackle the most compelling issues of our times. On our show, History Matters. We examine the past as we pivot to the future. On today's show, we plan to meet the new feminist in Congress, and we will. But in the period since our team at Ms. Magazine curated the design and content for today's show, another shoe has dropped in American politics, further challenging our democracy. On January 2nd, 2021, during an hour long conference call, U.S. President Donald Trump pressured the Georgia Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger to overturn the state's election results in the 2020 presidential election, claiming miscounts, fraud, broken machines, and more. Take a listen.
1: Fellas, I need 11,000
2: votes. Give me a break.
0: Now, this is after the president made 18 attempts to speak with Raffensperger after the November election. I
3: just wanna find
0: uh, 11,780
1: votes, which is one more than we have, because we won the state.
0: Now, despite the president's hour-long attempt urging Raffensperger, a Republican, to toss valid votes, the Georgia Secretary of State did not cave. He refused to buckle to the president's urgings. Instead, Raffensperger taped the call.
4: I just preferred not to talk to someone when we're in litigation. We left all lawyers handling. The data that he has is just plain wrong.
0: You know, that's not all. By January 6th, all eyes were not only on Georgia, which had just elected its first Black senator to Congress, Raphael Warnock. Dr. Warnock, the pastor of the church where Dr. King presided and who counted the late representative John Lewis amongst his congregants, made history.
2: The 82-year-old hands that used to pick somebody else's cotton went to the polls and picked her youngest son to be a United States senator. As
0: well, Georgia also elected one of the youngest persons to ever serve the Senate. John Asaf. Asaf is also Jewish, and this has significance in Georgia. Uri Offer, the deputy national political director and director of the ACLU's Justice Division, tweeted this out. He stated so much symbolism in both Warnock's election and Asaf's election as the first Jewish senator from Georgia, the same state that in 1915 lynched leo frank frank was heavily involved in jewish life in georgia and he was murdered by an anti-semitic mob that's what Udi offer had to to say but what offer is relating to was the mob also of pro-trump insurrectionists that stormed the nation's capital brandishing confederate flags anti-semitic sweatshirts and hats Hats emblazoned with the word Trump or make America great again, there was violence and total chaos. At one point, chilling audio, we hear officers being penned in and one being crushed. In real time, people around the world heard all of that. Americans watched as the president urged an eager and hyped up crowd that they have to be strong just before the riot. Take a listen.
2: We're gonna walk down to the Capitol and we're gonna cheer
4: on our brave senators and congressmen and women
2: and we're probably not gonna be cheering so much for some of them. Because you'll never take back our country with weakness. You have to show strength and you have to be strong.
0: The world watched as an insurrection took place at the nation's capital. Insurrectionists stormed the capital and rioted. They interrupted the electoral college vote. One woman, Elizabeth, we don't know her last name. Some of folks in Twitter may have tracked her down, but she said that she was from Tennessee. That's so what she told a reporter and that she was there to participate in the revolution. Ma'am, what
3: what happened to you?
0: I
4: got maced. You got maced? by the a... <sighs>
3: And what happened? You were trying to go inside the yeah, Capitol?
4: I, I made it like a foot inside and they pushed me out and they maced me.
3: What's your your name? Where are you from? My
4: name is Elizabeth. I'm from Knoxville, Tennessee.
3: And why did you want to go in?
4: We're storming
0: the Capitol. It's a revolution. Thank you. Another woman, Texas real estate broker Jenna Ryan, posed next to a smashed window, broken out window at the Capitol, and tweeted, we just stormed the Capitol. It was one of the best days of my life. She told the New York Post, this is a prelude to going to war. She flew to Washington DC on a private jet. On live stream, she said, God wanted us here today. Trump is my president. Jenna Ryan is right. Donald Trump is not only her president, he's the president of the United States. And this has many people around the world worried and people throughout the United States. Members of his cabinet have left, distancing themselves from the president in the wake of the riots, including close allies like Matthew Pottinger, Trump's national security advisor, Mick Mulvaney, Mr. Trump's former acting chief of staff, He resigned as special envoy to Northern Ireland, noting he couldn't stay in the administration that has actually only days left after watching the president provoke a mob that overtook the Capitol complex. Secretary of Education Betsy DeVos, a billionaire Republican donor, wrote in her resignation letter, there is no mistaking the impact your rhetoric had on the situation, and it is the inflection point for me she wrote elaine cho the department of transportation secretary announced her resignation on twitter she became the first cabinet member to do so she wrote that the riots deeply troubled her and that she could not set it aside so she was the first amongst the cabinet members to flee and the list is growing but who could actually set any of this aside when the rioters made clear what their aims were here's jenny could who describes what she and others did to speaker pelosi's office vandalize anything
4: but we did <laughs> we did as i say that uh, we did break down the um, nancy pelosi's office door and uh, somebody stole her gavel and uh, took a picture sitting in the chair, flipping off the camera, and that was on Fox News. Um, Patriots got down on the floor and were um, sitting in the House members in the Senator's chair.
0: Now, at least five people are dead, linked to the attack on the United States government. The first person to die a woman who was shot in the abdomen and later died as a result of this insurrection. In the day before leading to the insurrection, a Twitter account bearing her name warned, nothing will stop us. They can try and try and try, but the storm is here. And it's descending upon DC in less than 24 hours, dark to light. She concluded that with an exclamation mark insurrectionists scaled walls broke to and vandalized offices ransacked the halls there was an armed standoff not since august 4th 1812 a battle with the british has the united states Capitol been breached members of congress desperately scrambled for cover they barred doors they took cover under tables and desks wherever they could find places to hide from the raging mob that had already smashed and climbed through windows. Chilling images of security, pointing guns at the doors in the halls of Congress, fearing perhaps for their lives and the people that they were protecting will forever be reflected about this time in our history. One person stole the podium used by Nancy Pelosi, the Speaker of the House. He smiled for a photo. He's since been identified by the Bradenton Herald as 36-year-old Adam Johnson, a father of five. He's been arrested, but not on the day of the riot, which raises other important issues about race and policing and a tale in some ways of two very different cities, countries, tale of two different Washington DC's compared to the Black Lives Matter protests in the wake of Breonna Taylor's murder and that of George Floyd compared to white supremacists storming the Capitol. So we wanted to know how Americans were processing the horrors of the insurrection, including acknowledging that double standard that we saw unfold in terms of policing in the United States. What were black people thinking about that? What were we all thinking about that? So we called up a friend of our show, Dr. Patricia Jones-Blessman. She's a noted psychologist who's worked on high profile cases.
1: Hello, Michelle.
0: Hello there. So I'm calling, you know that I have a show on the issues. And you've been a guest on the show. And I'm calling you because of the events of this week, the the riots, the insurrection. And as one of the leading psychologists who's focused on issues of trauma, how are you processing this? And how do you think that people should be processing where we are right now? Girl, was this on Cray Cray? Well, you know, this is exactly what... This is exactly what we've seen uh, being delivered in video footage that has been uh, filmed by the people themselves who rioted and stormed the Capitol. But really, what does this mean? People came into 2021 thinking about hope. There was the Georgia election. And on the very day of the Georgia election, there were people who were breaking the windows of the Capitol building. I mean, this is a building that has been safe since
1: 1812. Right, right. Well, you know, we should not have been surprised on some level because it was, they, they have been broadcasting their intent for weeks before, I mean, months before this even occurred.
0: Tell me about, just before I let you go, and, and thank you for taking my call, I'm wondering what your sense is of the Capitol Police who you know there are? There's video of Capitol Police being uh, barricaded and an officer being crushed, and then there's also footage of officers taking selfies, uh, opening up the barricades, um, and not resisting, not arresting the people who came through. From a perspective, thinking about race and what that means in terms of mental health, how do you think that Black people are processing that?
1: Well. You know, I know that it's, it is difficult and challenging because I, I know some, uh, I have a lot of friends who are activists, frontline activists around social justice. And in fact, um, who had been uh, in D.C., uh, one of my dearest friends was in D.C., got arrested. She talked about being called thugs, being called the N-word, um, shoved to the ground. She's a woman shoved to the ground, that kind of thing. Um, by the same police arrested fined a whole nine yards and then to watch uh, and they were doing and they were peacefully protesting and so it, it is particularly bitter pill for the activists and uh, those in the black community to watch um, these uh, an, uh, another group with fair complexion get <laughs> invited to invited to protest and tear up Mm-hmm. Um, and that's, you know, it's very disheartening to be in a country where, uh, where it's very clear that you don't you don't get the same you don't get any respect. Mm-hmm. You your your voice is not even, you know, you, your the ability to voice the ability to share your voice is not even recognized, and in fact will be violently snuffed out if we if they can by the by the authorities to be. But it also says too that white supremacy on some level is backed up and supported by police departments.
0: All the while, the rioters took photos, selfies with Capitol Police, and video recorded themselves, but there are very few arrests on the day of the actual riot, certainly compared to the number of people who were rioting and on camera storming the Capitol. So... Why were they at the Capitol? Who were they? A lawyer amongst the group, Paul Davis, a former associate general counsel and director of human resources at Goosehead Insurance, he's since been fired, explained in a video why he participated. The fact that
4: they will not let us inspect any of the ballots
0: or the machines should tell you something. And we're all
3: trying
4: to get into the Capitol to stop this. And this is what's happening.
0: So what does this insurrection mean for the United States? Will there be an impeachment? What message will it send? Here's what Jennifer Steinhauer, a New York Times journalist, shared with me on this point. She spent more than 25 years covering Congress and is the author of the book, The First, the Inside Story of the Women Reshaping Congress. Really happy to have her on the show today. Given the events that unfolded on January the 6th, what many are calling not only mob rioting at the nation's capital, but direct actions of sedition and insurrection and attempted coup. What are your thoughts about that?
5: Well, um, for me as a reporter who's been covering Washington since 2010, um, I started covering Congress right when the Tea Party wave was going on. And the first class um, that kind of was a result of that were the Republicans, the 87 freshmen who took over the House, uh, who helped Republicans take over the House in 2011. And that was, you know, a very, as I said, that was a result of the Tea Party movement. <coughs> Excuse me. And since that time period, um, we have seen the populist, um, and quite frankly, uh, nationalist and 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 more racist elements of the party um, and, and, it's, and its instincts in its base grow and become uh, more vocal. And the party moved from front of this sort of Tea Party fiscal movement in morphing into eventually what would become Trumpism. And so... While I was, as someone who's covered the Capitol, shocked to see it desecrated like that, and it's a place that's extremely secure, that as a reporter, I've been detained for having an expired press pass, you know, for an hour. I was amazed to see that security breach. I'm still baffled as to how it happened, but I'm not surprised by by the supporters of President Trump, who he basically egged on to do that. I wasn't, I was shocked at the outcome. I wasn't surprised by the provocation and I wasn't surprised by their move to do so.
0: So let's unpack that a little bit with the first part that you speak to which is that you've been detained. We know in 2017 there were more than 40 individuals with disabilities that were arrested and even dragged out of the very buildings that were being photographed yesterday and those were individuals who were at the nation's capital advocating peacefully for greater expansion of Medicaid and health services for individuals with disabilities. And yet they were uh, forcefully removed. And yesterday uh, we didn't see that. So tell us about why you think that was what's behind that. I mean, it's, I'm telling you in honesty
5: that it's so hard for me to fathom because as I said, I walk into the Capitol every day for years um and i still go there quite frequently and i have a pair of boots where if the buckle sits off the metal detector you know i have to stop and and um and be magged. that's just part of the process if you look at the video what you see is that the capitol police were clearly overwhelmed um you see long videos of them arguing with protesters with these people who were starting to take off their jackets and push through the barricades they were not but you know what's interesting to me is they were not in riot gear they had no backup, which suggests lack of planning, and they certainly didn't use any of the non-lethal force that they've used on, for example, Black Lives Matter protesters, not the Capitol Police, but other law enforcement officials, no pepper spray, none of the kind of deterrence that you might see when a mob is coming up to, to uh, essentially take over the United States Capitol. So it was an incredible um, breach of, of planning um, and response. And then I'm gonna add a little another element there which is that lawmakers and the mayor of um, D.C. Meryl Bowser really wanted National Guard back up quickly and called for that. But the Pentagon was loath to respond immediately because they did not want a repeat of what happened in Lafayette square um, over the summer when, you know, protesters, as I just mentioned, were pepper sprayed and worse to make way for president Trump to make his way through the crowd, to go to that church. So two very
0: different things though, right. Between what the, the, the people who were responding to the murder of George Floyd, that very brutal murder, which some people are calling a lynching on the streets of Minneapolis and People being pepper sprayed in Washington, D.C. because the president wanted a photo opportunity um, versus what it was that we saw yesterday. What do you see as the difference there? Or are they those rationales alike? Do they both hold up?
5: Well, that rationale holds up in the sense that there was um, so much criticism. And I do believe um, members of the military, uh, particularly General Martin Milley, were very chastened by that. Um, he actually had to apologize for walking through uh, uh, Lafayette Square with the president. So I think they didn't want to create the impressions of some military takeover, especially since everyone's been very concerned that Trump was going to try to leverage the military somehow in refusing to leave office and so forth. So these sensitivities were very heightened, and I do understand that. Um, having said that, that still does not answer the question that you, me, everyone has: is why wasn't better? Um, law enforcement tactics. Why weren't they employed the second that those barricades went down? And it was clear that they had every intention of coming into the Capitol illegally and to cause destruction. And I think that, I think it was impossible to imagine as you and I are sitting here talking that, um, that people aren't being fired or preparing to be fired over this.
0: That would certainly seem to be the case as video footage wrapped up the evening as legislators came back uh, to Congress, one couldn't help but think that it was such a poignant and somewhat disturbing symbolic image of the United States and that there were Black workers who were sweeping up the aftermath and cleaning the halls of our nation's government after uh, many white supremacists Um, had destroyed, and they perhaps were not all white supremacists who were there, but we certainly did see the Confederate flag waving um, forcefully through the halls of America's government.
5: Yes, I mean, that was a shocking sight. And by the way, um, some people have suggested the Confederate flag has never hung in the Capitol. That's not accurate, because obviously the Confederate flag has been part of state flags, which have hung in the Capitol at certain times, and there's been a great move over the last few years by Nancy Pelosi and others to remove Confederate symbols from the Capitol. But having, having said that, um, of course, to have an individual striding through um, the, the, the rotunda, uh, carrying a, a Confederate flag is a haunting image that I don't think anyone will soon forget. And certainly um, Black workers in the Capitol, Black members of Congress, Black staff members, um, a shocking thing uh, to see. I think um, what is interesting is there was talk of continuing the people's business, which as you recall, was actually the ratification of um, the, um, President Biden and, and um, Kamala Harris's uh, election results, which was being protested by various members of Congress, Republicans, mostly in the House, some in the Senate. Um, there was talk of trying to continue that offsite somehow. And I think actually it was a Vice President Pence who thought it was very important to return to the Capitol and show that the government would not be intimidated and would not fall apart and would not um, unravel in the face of all this insurgency and to go ahead and continue that business um, where it was meant to be uh, conducted. Well,
0: it's interesting to see how vulnerable that process became. And many were reporting yesterday afternoon, thank goodness, of the the quick thinking of the person who secured um the electoral college uh votes i don't know exactly where she took them but there were photographs <laughs> like thank yeah. goodness
5: into a secure location, and those were kind of old-fashioned wooden boxes, um, which to me, when I saw those images as well, um, and, and the fact that women were carrying them somehow evoked this whole sort of historical significance of that moment in the context of Congress, the role of women in Congress and so forth. And just the fact that they were these old-fashioned, they almost look like sewing boxes. It really they do. just reminds you of both um, the historic nature of that building, that institution, its role, obviously, in our government um the 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 um the actual material culture of that building there's even like little dial-up phones in the elevator still and yet conflicting with this um in some ways historically resonant but completely contemporary uh, political shameful movement that had occurred all around it it was it was really a striking image i agree
0: With the chaos, violence, insurrection and riots at the nation's capital, it would be easy to lose sight of the landmark Georgia election, which will also shift power to the Democrats. What will that mean with Kamala Harris as a tiebreaker? It would be easy to lose sight of the rise of women in political power, which is exactly what this episode was intended to be about. And we're getting to that right now. In other words, the trauma associated with the president's efforts to undermine the 2020 election results, including he and his followers filing five dozen lawsuits, nearly each one of which he lost. The horror of the riots and the fragility of the American democracy really has created the sense of being at rock bottom. However, this past election has been an important one for women and for our nation. For example, the Nevada Independent noted two years after Nevada made history as the first U.S. state to have women compose a majority of its state legislature, lawmakers will return to Carson City in 2021 with nearly 60 percent of the seats filled by women legislators, by far the largest percentage of any state house in the country. But take a look at Minnesota. Minnesota saw a record number of women elected to its legislature, 72 to be exact, bringing the percentage of women in the legislature in that state to 35%. Now, I know what some of you are thinking, but that's not 50%. I agree with you every state must do better. But let's be clear, there's never been in Minnesota 35% of that state's legislature being women. The women in the U.S. Congress are also making historic gains. The 117th Congress will have a record number of women. In 2018, the U.S. elected a record 127 women to the House and Senate, including 48 women of color. Now, the majority of those women were occupying seats in the House, not in the Senate. But seats in the House make a difference too. Just think about it. Speaker Pelosi has called for the second impeachment of Donald Trump. That takes place in the House. This year, the U.S. has elected at least 116 women to the House and 25 in the Senate. This month, there were 51 women of color sworn in to fill congressional seats. I'm wondering what Shirley Chisholm would be thinking about that and Fannie Lou Hamer too. Women will make up at least 27% of the House and 24% of the Senate. Now, that's still only roughly a quarter of Congress when women represent 51 percent of the total u.s population and the world economic forum reminds us that the u.s is nowhere near its pure nations in terms of women's representation in power in federal office i get that and all across this country much better advocacy and work to get women elected should take place but that said Women are filling seats in state legislature, in Congress, on school boards, in record numbers. And it made a tremendous difference in this election too, including in states like Georgia, in Wisconsin, and Arizona, all over the nation. They made a difference in this particular election. Now that said, one point that's being raised is that This doesn't mean that women, especially white women, didn't vote for Donald Trump in both 2016 and 2020, depending upon the exit polls you look at, upward of 47% to over 50% of white women voted for Donald Trump in 2020. And that's a point of concern that many people have. And we'll get to that in this episode and episodes to come. But in a broader note, what do these gains in Congress represent for our nation, for women, for boys and girls? What transformative can happen with more women in power? What does it mean for our nation? And so helping me to sort out some of these issues, I'm joined again by Jennifer Steinhauer and Also by Carolyn Bordeaux, she is a representative of the U.S. House representing Georgia's 7th Congressional District. Teresa Leger Fernandez, she is a representative of the U.S. House representing New Mexico's 3rd Congressional District. District. So happy to have her on the show, as well as Marie Newman. She is a representative of the U.S. House representing Illinois' 3rd Congressional District. They have a lot to say about these issues, and so I'm going to turn back to Jennifer Steinhauer to give a sense about why exactly it is that she wrote her book, The First, The Inside Story of the Women Reshaping Congress.
5: I uh, was motivated to write a book about the women in Congress after all my years of covering Congress and to understand this historic class um, that came in in 2019 after the 2018 midterms full of the first, um, the women, uh, the two uh, first Muslim women, the, the, the two first um, native american women many people who um were the first woman um or the first person of color to hold their seat i think of lauren underwood i like to bring her up a lot she's from the chicago suburbs she ran in 2018 in a very crowded democratic primary not the pick of the party prevailed went on to unseat a republican first woman youngest person first person of color to represent that district which by the way she grew up in in naperville illinois so there were just so many firsts and it was great to learn um what motivated them to run and how they became uh, and what they did with you know their first term in office.
0: And so that was your motivation for engaging in this space. And what's the result? You know, what's, what's your thought? You know, do you think that women will make a difference sitting in Congress, more women? Um, well, my kind of conclusion was twofold.
5: One is that, you know, party definitely trumps gender. Um, women like men largely vote with their party. Um, there's not sort of the female coalition, if you will, that there was in the 1970s when Republican and Democratic women worked together on a lot of issues, including the attempt to pass the um, Equal Rights Amendment, uh, which, as you know, was successful in Congress and then ultimately not ratified. I don't know if any of your listeners have watched Mrs. America and the story of Phyllis Schlafly's successful attempts to, to kill that, but it's, it's really kind of a fabulous um, a fabulous series. I definitely recommend it. But they didn't have any power. You know, in the 70s, they had no gavels. They weren't on any good committees. They worked more across party lines that changed in the 80s with the Gingrich Revolution. And as the, all Republicans became more conservative, and uh, the number of Democratic women really exponentially uh, outpaced them. But the two things I think are important to say is that in order to have any types of coalitions like we see in the Nevada legislature, which is barely, but it is majority female, the first one in the nation, you see them working together on things like rape kit um, requirements for the police and things like that, that are issues that women care about when they get together in large numbers will put to the forefront of the legislative agenda. So I think, you know, having all these exciting women was very important to other women because they can see them there and see themselves running for office. But I think what was more significant to the um, 116th Congress was its pure diversity, its um, racial, religious, um, ethnic, uh, professional diversity, having all these women who were veterans, for example, um, who worked in the national security space. It was just a really, really um, powerful, uh, informed, um, prepared and diverse class.
0: That brings me right to the question about why my guest ran for office. And so we're going to start it off with hearing from Representative Marie Newman about why she got in the race after founding her own anti bullying nonprofit. She founded a national nonprofit organization called Team Up to Stop Bullying with her partner to address the problems, ultimately expanding it to a coalition of 70 anti-bullying groups working nationwide. So why did she run for office? You're gonna find out now, along with finding out about why some of the other guests on the show also decided to put their hat in. Let's start with you, Rep-Elect Newman. What motivated you to run for office?
4: You know, I get, asked that frequently, and I don't think it was any one thing. What I saw was is that um, in my particular district, it was completely out of alignment with our values. So that was kind of one and had been watching that for a while. A few people had said, oh, God, I'm in lots of advocacy um, initiatives, everything from um, women's movement, uh, gun safety reform to um, health care inequity and income inequity. So choose one. Um, I feel passionately about all of those things. Um, but at the end of the day, our rep was so out of alignment and so ridiculously averse to women's rights. It was just so tangible that it was almost, I always say that I had to run, it's not, not that necessarily I wanted to, I had to run. Someone had to stand up to this guy and someone had to stand up to the Chicago machine. And honestly, it only could be a mom. It, it really it literally could only be a mom because, um, you know, Throughout my career, when I had a very thorny, complex problem that was stressful and required a lot of attention is I call a busy mom because those are the ones that are best at that. So um, I felt like, well, I'm just as good a busy mom as anybody else. So
0: I want to pick up on that when you say busy mom, because that's also been a factor used to constrain women's voices in a number of categories, right? The idea has been like, oh, she's a mom. That means the only place that she's supposed to be is in a kitchen uh, with an apron. And hey, I like putting on an apron and baking some cookies and things like that, but doesn't seem that that should be the only space that a mom can be. But historically, that's what has defined women's lives. You're a mom, you're supposed to be at home.
4: Yeah. And, and that's cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs, right? That's just, that's a bunch right. Of <laughs> um, you know, I, uh, so I have my entire career. I started out in, uh, I was a partner in a, uh, the largest advertising agency in the U.S. I have run a business out of my home, a sole proprietorship and sometimes, um, an S corp and, uh, done management consulting and, and a bunch of things. I ran a national nonprofit from my home. Um, so, um, we can do many things and I'll just be gender-esque for a moment is that women can do many things. In fact, I often go to women because they're so good about the workaround, right? You know, that I put it, somebody put a big blockade in my way and frequently it's the patriarchy, right? Um, so I need to figure out what's the map around that. And, um, and I find that to be very creative, innovative, and resourceful, right? So, Um, Women have been doing this for centuries, literally, and I think only now has the blockade started to, um, I mean, thank God for uh, Gloria Steinman and uh, Bella Abzug and all of that generation because we wouldn't be where we are today. But I think finally, finally, we're getting to a place where um, that blockade is not so much a thing.
0: And I asked a similar question to representatives Bordeaux and also Fernandez, which is exactly why did they decide to run? So let's listen to representative Bordeaux followed by the very interesting answer and background given by representative Fernandez.
3: Well, there were several pushes that got me into this. I just a little on my background, I teach at Georgia State at the Andrew Young School of Policy Studies and have been involved in public and policy life here in Georgia for a long time. I was director of the Senate Budget Office during the Great Recession, so helped the state balance the budget then, Uh, founded the Center for State and Local Finance. Uh, So I've been involved in that kind of um, work. And a couple things became apparent to me. One was that our elected officials seem to have lost their line of sight to the people of this district and one of the big issues was healthcare and there are 120,000 people in this district without health insurance which is gives people basic access to a doctor
0: and that's George, stunning
3: that yeah. number it's a lot of people. And when offered an opportunity to help them through things like expansion of Medicaid and rolling out the Affordable Care Act, in, instead of taking action to help, what happened was our elected officials, and in particular the representative in this district, actually undermined that uh, proposal in that program, and so Georgia did not expand Medicaid. Uh, something that I know from a fiscal standpoint meant that the state was returning to the federal government between 2.2 and 3 billion dollars a year that could have gone a long way to helping ensure that everybody had insurance coverage and access to a doctor. So that was one of the the big pushes uh, into it. The other was the election of Donald Trump, and I just was not okay with the racism, the sexism, the xenophobia uh, coming out of this administration. And so those were two big reasons for why I got into this race.
0: Well, and it seems that those reasons resonated with your constituents as well, because you flipped the seat, a seat. And in fact, you were the only person who ran in this 2020 election to actually flip uh, a rec- Uh, an incumbent Republican seat. Can you tell us a little bit about that?
3: Sure. So I got into this race in July of 2017, and it was a sleeper race. This is the northeastern suburbs of Atlanta. It is a very diverse community. 25% of the people in this district, so a quarter, were born outside of this country. So you can imagine it is this huge melting pot uh, of people from all over the country and all over the world. I got into this race uh, in 2017. It was a, uh, you know, very Republican district and just started reaching out uh, to these many, many diverse communities in this district. And with a lot of effort, uh, we did not get a lot of outside help, but it was a really grassroots organization. And we closed what was a 20 percentage point gap. So the Republican incumbent had never gotten below sixty percent of the vote. We closed that gap. I came within four hundred and thirty-three votes of flipping the seat back in twenty eighteen, which was the closest race in the country. And we felt like we had done so much work to engage people. We had some of the highest growth in new Democratic voter turnout in the country uh, as a part of that. That we we just couldn't stop there. So I turned around. I got back into the race, and we kind of repeated what we did before. We just deepened those connections throughout the community. We worked very hard on voter registration, voter engagement and voter turnout. And uh, with that effort, we're able to push it over the line uh, in this race.
0: Similarly, Representative Fernandez had concerns that were outside of herself. She'd spent 30 years as a counselor for tribes and their business entities, as well as with community leaders on affordable housing, Hispanic civil rights, and community development. And so in thinking about what motivated her to run for office and how she knew that she was in the clear to do so, it's very interesting. She tied it back to the communities that she served. Take a listen.
2: Running for office has been a calling, uh, truly a calling. Uh, My father had the saying that when something important needed to be done, He would say which means it's time now and literally his memorial (laughs) package with that name with that on the top because that was the top of his uh, memorial package was it's time now you know fell out of a drawer when the seat came open and i realized that it was time to bring the experience and in essence the love that i have uh for my communities uh to congress I have three decades of making a difference and creating opportunity in places of poverty. Uh, And I love the communities I work with. I love my planet. I love my democracy. I love my familias. And we all do. We all share this incredible love uh, for things like that, right? For our communities, our people, our planet. And everything we loved was under attack. It was under attack and I wanted to rise up and meet the challenge. And I believe that 2021 was going to be one of those transformative years. And this was in 2019 before we knew what 2020 would look like. But I wanted to be part of that transformative moment, building upon, you know, the successes we had seen in 2018, where we knew we had to get to work and get things done to start protecting what we love.
0: Did someone tap you or what was that moment? Like, do you remember the moment when you said enough, this is just simply enough. I've got to put my hat in.
2: Well, I truly did get a call. My brother called me the minute the race the the minute the race opened up. Uh, he, uh, you know, he's uh, uh, in Northern rural New Mexico. Uh, ben Ray Lujan called him. He said, of course, I'm going to support you for the Senate. He put the phone down, he picked it up, he called me. You know, environmentalist progressives, you know, they started calling because there was not a progressive voice of the community running. But I made that decision really quickly. I spoke to, uh, I work with tribal leaders, Native American communities, and I spoke with several that I work with, and they asked me to get really quiet and to listen to my heart. And they said, what does your heart tell you? And literally, we all started crying together because my heart told me I needed to do it knowing that it's not an easy thing to do. It's not easy. yeah. And knowing I would be leaving them. These are people I've worked with for decades. And they, you know, they gave me many blessings, many words of wisdom. And they literally also had tears in their eyes as they were telling me, you must do this. You will do more for us there. And I just knew it was the right thing. And so it was real sense of I must do this. Like I said, the first I've been able to do wonderful things in my life. Uh, I'm very fortunate. I've had many, many um, Successes and blessings, and all of that, but this was the one that was a calling.
0: So, tell our audience then about some of that journey that led you to this point. And I say that because often it's been discounted that important work of working with communities, of helping people in poverty of lifting them out of conditions. And it's interesting because that should be the point, right? It should be transformative leadership that we're talking about. But often when you think about whether it is uh, running and becoming a member of Congress, taking a seat on the court, often it is not that, you know, those kinds of experiences and qualifications that are deemed those that are most elite And yet I can't help but think when you've transformed lives, the very bottom up, that that is the work that's important.
2: I think it absolutely is because I am bringing to Congress perspectives of what it's like in the trenches. What are the obstacles that we run into when we try to put broadband into communities that don't have it? Like the year before the pandemic hits, and then when the pandemic hits, and they didn't get it, right? And so now their lives are at risk, they can't go to school. You know, I have helped build. Rural health clinics. I have helped take lots of money. One of the things I know is finance, but the finance I do, sorry, Uh, one of the things I know is finance, but the finance I do is taking money into underrepresented, underserved communities to build health clinics, to build schools, to build businesses. Because if we don't have businesses in those communities, we also don't have jobs right? And so everything is connected. And I've spent 30 years doing that. I've spent 30 years embracing cultural diversity. My parents were bilingual education pioneers. They wrote the law by which Navajo, Apache, Tewa, Tewa, Toa, Keres, uh, uh, Zuni, and Spanish are required to be taught in our schools. And uh, because of the law that they wrote, there were these pioneers, they believed in service. So I grew up just thinking that that's what you do, right? It's just natural, but also realizing that there is this strength of diversity, but a strength in knowing your identity and being proud of it and uh, using that as your source of strength at the same time that you kind of take complete joy in another community's identity, right? So I'm Latina, I work with Native Americans. It's like, I love going to their feast days. I am not, you know, it's like, wow, that's their feast day, I love it, let's go eat.
0: Breaking bread is an amazing thing, isn't it? Right, when you can just sit together, be together, stand together, however you're coming together, right? Mm -hmm. And whether it's with hands or fork and spoon and be able to come together in community, it's a powerful thing.
2: Yeah, or on the streets. I mean, whatever yes. it is that it takes to get you there. You know, I, I'm a big believer in democracy. A lot of my work has been about uh, increasing access to democracy. Uh, what I've sat does that on- look
0: like in your community, increasing access to democracy?
2: What it looks like was uh, I sat on the board, the, I was vice chair of the Mexican American Legal Defense and Education Fund, MALDEF, the, you know, uh, the, the Latino NAACP, right? And it looks like like fighting around redistricting to make sure that our community's voices are not broken up. And so I, I, I learned that on the national level and then I took it back to New Mexico and I fought both of the last two decennial redistricting cases in the court want them in the Supreme Court uh, to say, you are not breaking up. In this instance, it was like, as an example, they wanted to break up these Native American communities so they could create a uranium belt. So they would not have uh, opposition. The Republicans would not have opposition to new uranium mining, which had devastated these communities. That's what it looks like. What it looks like is when the clerks are refusing to early uh, ballots, early uh, voting voting sites on rural uh, Native American or rural neighborhoods, it says going to the Speaker of the House and say, I can sue you and you know I'll win a Voting Rights Act claim, but let's not do that. Let's legislate it. And so in New Mexico, we legislated that you must per early voting sites so everybody has equal access to the ballot. What it looks like is, you know, we have this amazing bill that has been introduced, H.R. 1, the For the People Act. I call it the Protect Our Democracy, Protect What We Love, Protect Our Fair Elections. It means looking at that bill and saying, I can bring lessons from New Mexico about how we did that, and let's put them into this bill. And the Democrats saying, great ideas, let's put them into that bill. So that's what it looks like to say, people should not have to wait 10 hours to vote. They are democracy heroes when they are waiting 10 hours, but that is not democracy, that is suppression. And so let's put something in a bill that says that is a violation and that will not be tolerated.
0: So one of the things that I learned from my guests is that it's not enough to just run for office, although that's really important. And the work that they were doing before they ran for office was transformative in their communities and also nationally. But remember what we heard from Jennifer Steinhauer? You don't get to be a member of Congress unless you actually unseat somebody. So being successful in running for office actually matters. It's not enough to just run for office. One must unseat somebody. And one can't help but notice that the majority of the women who have taken seats in Congress this year are women who ran on Democratic tickets. Now, there were Republican women who also were seated in this Congress, but compared to the Democrats, um, they're really quite in the minority. But it doesn't mean that the women all win on their first go-around. And so that's really important to think about as we hear about Carolyn Bordeaux's story, because although she unseated a, an incumbent Republican, she had to do it on her second try. Here's what she had to say. So what's your message to those who might say, I, I, it's a good idea, but I'm not sure that I would be successful. I don't know if it's worth all of that effort. And at the end of the day, it come down to a few hundred votes. And I'm not on the winning side of that. Do you have a message for people who are thinking about that? Do you have a message for women who might be in a position thinking about that?
3: Well, one of the mottos of the campaign was persistence and consistence, <laughs> be consistent and persistent. Let me turn that around a little bit. And um, it 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 is very, very important. Uh, you have to recognize there's a lot to learn when you first try a political campaign. Uh, but also, if you're in a district like this, uh, where Democrats really just didn't compete uh, before that What's 2018 that? cycle. And and that made a huge difference that we actually were knocking the doors and talking to people who've never been talked to before by a Democratic candidate.
0: So do you think that that was the reason why uh, Democrats in that area had not been successful because there wasn't a grassroots type of campaign? There just wasn't support for it. But
3: with the election of of Trump, you had this huge energy uh, pouring into, you know, people were just not going to take it anymore. And I think uh, we were all of us willing to take more risks too. All of a sudden, that we realized we had to take these kind of risks. We had to try. Uh, we could not let the country go down this way. And uh, you know, with that outpouring of energy, that was yes, that made the difference. Um, I can't say you know single-handedly I did this at all. There was a a coalition a very diverse coalition. We had Stacey Abrams at the top of the ticket, uh, you know, myself running Lucy McBath in the sixth congressional district. Um, I had an incredibly diverse and very talented group of people running at the state house and Senate levels as well. And we just put together this formidable coalition to engage people in ways they had not been engaged before.
0: Well, in fact, and speaking of, of that, what became really clear was the work of, a diverse cohort of folks and especially women and women of color and black women coming out and that really making its mark not only in Georgia, but across the country. But, but let's turn to Georgia because Georgia has been in the spotlight. So what do you think has been the magic ingredients or is there any kind of magic ingredient behind what women did to make this happen?
3: Yes, there is a magic ingredient, and it's hard work. (laughs) Everybody wants the glamorous answer, but we sat down, and we have knocked the doors. We've made the phone calls. We've raised the money. We've done the mailers. We've done the digital campaigns. We've gotten up on TV. We did the work, and Mm -hmm. uh, everybody wants some kind of secret formula here, and I'm I tell them I I had 100 interns who were high school students and college students from the diverse communities of this district. um, And uh, they made probably half a million dials, talked to 18,000 voters one on one and helped educate them often about how to vote, how to overcome some of the voting problems we have here. So uh, and, and that was just it was elbow grease. It was hard work. And it was this diverse and wonderful coalition of people who came together and just did the work.
0: So what we just heard from Representative Bordeaux is that there is no secret sauce or magic to women winning more seats in elected office, except that it's hard work that it's coalition building, galvanizing, working with young people, building bridges, and clearly not giving up, having that winning spirit. That said, a lot of money has entered politics in the wake of the Supreme Court decision, Citizens United, which many believe is one of the most dangerous and egregious opinions to our democracy ever issued by the United States Supreme Court, But even with their wins, I also wondered, could the message of hard work and unity actually help and advance an agenda in Congress where partisanship has been and has left
2: such a visible mark? There is stuff we can do because we will be passing bills and we will now have a president And a vice president and an administration who will go out and help us explain what they are, because I can go to my district, but I can't go to the country. Right. And we can have uh, Vice President Kamala Harris go to the country and explain why this makes sense. And she can do it with uh, President Biden and she can do it with, you know, Secretary Fudge. And she can do it with, you know, Secretary Holland, you know, our first Native American and heading up the Secretary of Interior. And that is the kind of uh, pulpit that we will have. To the nation to explain what we're doing so that there becomes a common understanding of what we are trying to do. What we have not been able to do in the last four years is have that expression, there's been Trump has been distracting us. Trump and those Republicans who support him, because not all do. What they are good at is distracting from the work that the American people do. And what we need to get good at is saying, this is the work that we are doing for you. And this is how it translates to your future.
0: As we turn to the closing segment of our unique arrangement for this On the Issues episode, I wanted to further explore the question What can be expected from a Biden-Harris White House? What can be expected now with their control of the Senate, but still with obstacles along the way? And here's what my guest had to say. So what's your sense with regard to many who say that with a Biden-Harris team in the White House, that the very concerns that you have and that you've had and others, that they go away, right? And that yeah. there's this kind of new day where there's less to worry about than yeah. what we've seen in recent years. What's your response to that?
4: Well, I think they have a good start. They're not done. Um, if you're talking about cabinet picks and uh, filling out their um, administration, they're not done. I, I don't even think they're quite halfway there. Um, and. I believe that they are making uh, good selections. The, the most important thing I will say, um, while I would like to have them be more diverse and younger, quite honestly, and more women, um, it's much better than we've ever had. So let's give them credit for that. Um, the equally important thing is that these people are actually competent versus our last administration, which was filled with incompetency. So that's something. That's a bright spot. But we just have to hold their feet to the fire, right? Is that? Uh, um, Vice President-elect uh, Harrison and uh, President-elect Biden um, are listening, and we have open ears. So let's let's use that and make sure that we c- continue to keep their feet to the fire and keep them accountable to uh, what they've said. And, um, you know, I just had an interview yesterday with someone who asked me about um, AG picks because they're being deliberative, and I have no issue with that. You keep thinking about it, and that gives us more time to wear them down, right?
0: I couldn't leave my interviews with representatives Bordeaux, Fernandez, Newman, without reflecting on the times in which we're in. And that is a global pandemic, one that has wrecked havoc all around the world. And we see it in the United States. In some communities, there just simply aren't uh, enough hospital beds. There are bodies that are in trucks that are being kept refrigerated because those bodies are the bodies of dead people. In some communities, there just simply isn't the sophisticated medical devices and technologies that will help to keep people alive while they struggle through COVID to do the things that we take for granted, such as breathing. And of course there's been a disproportionate toll in how, COVID has affected communities in the United States. Clearly, if there are Native American reservations where the plumbing hasn't reached the houses, then that's going to be difficult addressing COVID. So those are some of the issues that I end up taking up with Representative Bordeaux. And so before we close out the show and we talk about silver linings after a time that's been so complicated, Let's hear what that conversation was like, and then we're going to turn to silver lightings. Well, you know, what you're speaking of when thinking about COVID is the tragedies of these times, because what COVID has revealed are underlying institutional and infrastructural inequalities in our society. Over one in a thousand Americans has now died due to COVID. And when you think about it in context of other things, you know, the Vietnam War lasted 19 years. And within just the early few months of this disease, this pandemic in the United States, we had lost more Americans um, due to COVID than we had to the Vietnam War. Um, And that was just a few months in. You know, it makes me think that if some terrorist organization... Uh, claimed that they had killed in the United States, landed in the United States and killed one in a thousand Americans, you'd see every kind of uh, action, appropriations taking place from Congress to battle it all out. How come we're not seeing it with regard to COVID, at least in terms of financial appropriations?
3: I, I It is outrageous. Um, I can say in this relief package, There are some very, very important provisions beyond that kind of individual aid to families that are gonna be very important. There's uh, help to pay rent. Um, There are efforts to ensure that landlords are not throwing people out of their homes. There's very important help for schools. There's help for small businesses. Um, there is also aid that's really going to be essential in the distribution of the vaccine. And I don't know if you've noti- seen some of the stories, but we are struggling as a country to get that vaccine out to people right now. Uh, we were supposed to have something like 20 million people vaccinated by this point. And now we've only done something like 2 million. Um, and, you know, we, we, we need that. Is that aid. a
0: failure of coordination? What's that a failure of?
3: Oh, yes, it is a failure to understand how we distribute uh, uh, vaccines to people. It's my understanding that's what's happened is the federal government had the vaccines, gave them to the states, but for 20 years, the states have uh, gutted our public health programs, and so they gave it to the states, and the states are like, well, um, how do we get it out now to the doctors? But disparity also, I want to point out, disparity is going to continue to be an issue in the distribution of the vaccine because disparity is so embedded in our healthcare system. Uh, you know, how is this vaccine ultimately going to be distributed? It's probably going to be through our doctors, um, through the, the CVSs, the, wall, uh, the Walgreens, um, And what is going to happen with that 120,000 people who don't have health insurance? Uh, you know, I suspect that that is more disproportionately people of color uh, who are in that group. Where are they going to get the vaccine if they don't have a primary care provider? Mm-hmm. And that kind of question, it, it is going to permeate this entire process. And, and when
0: you speak of that number, you're talking, Georgia, and when we multiply that you know, nationwide, we're talking about millions of people who don't have access to health care insurance. And by not having access to health care insurance, it also means the very places that others would be familiar in terms of going to their doctor, their clinic, the local hospital. There are people who just don't have that in their parlance because they simply don't have health insurance and many millions of Americans have never had it. Exactly.
3: Yep. Well, right off the bat, uh, we are working on how we are going to tackle COVID and how we're going to use the congressional office to get aid to people who so desperately need it. And so the first thing is we have a relief package that we have passed, and we're going to put together a working group to make sure that it is getting where it needs to go in the district and a working group that can be taking notes on what else is needed uh, to get us through the crisis. And that includes everything from Families, income support, small businesses, working on the distribution of the vaccine, schools. Uh, the schools are going to be a big issue. How do we get our children uh, and keep our children in school safely until we can get that vaccine deployed?
0: And, Rhett Bordeaux, one other question before we get to the end of our show where we begin to talk about silver linings. You know, people think that when someone comes into office with great ideas, and with a commitment to action, that things turn around right away. And so I wonder what your message is to folks who might believe, well, you know, the Biden-Harris administration, Rep Bordeaux in Congress, it's all going to be different, right? The things that we've seen um, over not just the last four years, but even more so, right? Whether it's been Um, The blocking of judicial appointments, whether it's been the horrific things that we've seen with regard to immigration, children being taken away from their parents, put literally in cages, Mm -hmm. an administration that has argued against children having access to soap and toothpaste uh, Mm -hmm. while in detention centers, and so much more. We don't have to go through the whole litany of it, but it's a very long list. And so there are people who voted for you and have said, we wanna see a change to all of that. Well, what's your response to people who might say that hundred days, I want all that gone and we should be able to assess your track record after a hundred days, what do you say to that?
3: Well, I do think there are some things we can fix in relatively short order that uh, President Biden and Vice President Harris are going to be able to do through executive order. I think anybody who knows anything about U.S. government is that our legislative process is slow <laughs> and it takes a lot of work uh, to get legislation through and to make some of those bigger structural systemic changes that we so desperately need. Um, so, you know, we, we do have a government uh, designed that way for a reason. Um, because we do want to have everybody's voice heard. We do want to bring people together to to solve problems. And it does take time to do that. Um, I do think some
0: things will go faster than others. Listeners, we've reached that time in our show where, you know, I ask our guests about silver linings and I did with representatives Bordeaux, Newman, and Fernandez. And you'll hear it in that order. With each one, I ask what they see as a silver lining and what you'll hear now are their responses to me and boy, are they so insightful, so heartfelt and really touching. A way to help put in perspective all that we've been through and that we've seen in 2020 and what we've seen in just the first couple of weeks of 2021. But they give us a sense about how to look forward, Uh, how to live in hope, and also how to get to action. So take a listen to my questions about silver linings to representatives Bordeaux, Newman, and Fernandez. So one of the spaces that's a happy space for many of our listeners is to sort of think about even though there have been dark times, how we can look forward to silver linings. And so what do you see as a silver lining of these times going forward? What can folks in your district uh, gain hope from?
3: Well, there's several things. One, I would go back to the Black Lives Matter protests. And when I talk about that issue with people in the district. I I want everybody to go back to this touchstone of something very phenomenal that happened during those those protests. What happened in the 7th District was that every little city had multiple protests, and these were organized by young people, people in high school, college, who would post on Instagram and Twitter, let's just meet in the city center, and completely informal Thousands and thousands of people from diverse backgrounds, different age groups, showed up. And it was the most touching and moving part of the entire campaign. And it would be down home. The students would roll up with their little handheld speaker and microphone and would do presentations. And I think as a community, we need to go back to that moment and recognize that we are all in this together and we all want that opportunity for ourselves, for our children, and access to the American dream. And we want to do that as a diverse and inclusive community to get there.
0: So let's close out. One of the things that I ask my guests on each show is you know, given the times that we can be in at any moment, they can seem dark, uh, foreboding, and very difficult to overcome. Yeah. But I'm wondering what you see as the silver lining
4: going forward. So so it's funny, if, if I um, hover above society and think about society right now is that we learn two super important things. Is this a spe- experiment of a blend of a democracy and a republic works? It worked through the toughest of times. This model is incredibly strong. It worked through its worst threat in its 240 plus year plus history, right? So it works. Second thing is, is that science always wins, always wins every darn time, right? Even when it is it comes up against the greatest opposition. So with that, I feel wind beneath my wings um, and we're going to get a lot done.
0: Final question. And thank you so much for being with me today. Silver linings. What do you see coming out of what many people have described as the darkest time 2020 in perhaps the last century? What do you see as a silver lining coming out of 2020
2: and going forward into
0: 2021?
2: I really hope it is this determination to actually act that we, it's the idea that we are in historic moment and in historic moments, you must rise to meet that moment. And we must rise to meet this moment and act to address the things we've talked about today. And that is what I hope the silver lining is, is that when you are in that deepest despair, that you cannot just say, ah, you have to say, no, we must change what we have. And so that determination of changing what we have right now and that that is shared by enough people, uh, enough people in Congress and enough people around that we actually do it. The other silver lining is, I know you asked for one, but the other silver lining is the idea that we have now seen those who do so much of their work for us, right? And do we now say that we value essential workers and recognize, their essential existence to ours, and therefore we'll take care of them. And because they are us. And that is what I hope is another silver lining is that our hearts, you know, let's work from a place of love, from a place inside the heart. Um, You know, I ran on an idea that we work from, from our hearts and that we can now say we must take care of each other because they are as essential as I am essential.
0: Guests and listeners, that's it for today's episode of On the Issues with Michelle Goodwin. I want to thank my guests, the newly elected Women of Congress Representatives Carolyn Bordeaux, Teresa Laguerre-Fernandez, Marie Newman, and also our New York Times guest Jennifer Steinhauer for joining us in being part of this critical and insightful conversation. And to our listeners, I thank you for tuning in for the full story. We hope you will join us again for our next episode, where we will be reporting, rebelling, and telling it like it is with special guests tackling issues related to the anniversary of Roe v. Wade. It will be an episode you will not want to miss. And for more information on what we discussed today, head to MsMagazine.com. Now, if you believe, as we do, that women's voices matter, that equality for all persons cannot be delayed, and that rebuilding America, being unbought and unbossed, and reclaiming our time are important, then be sure to visit us at Apple Podcasts. Look for us at MsMagazine.com for new content and special episode updates. Rate and subscribe to On the Issues with Michelle Goodwin in Apple Podcasts. Spotify, iHeartRadio, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher. Let us know what you think of our show and support independent feminist media. This has been your host, Michelle Goodwin, reporting, rebelling, and telling it like it is. On the Issues with Michelle Goodwin is a Ms. Magazine joint production. Kathy Spiller and Michelle Goodwin are our executive producers. Our producers for this episode are Maddie Ponce, Roxy Zal and Mariah Lindsay. The creative vision behind our work includes art and design by Brandy Phipps, editing by Will Alvarez and Marsh Allen, digital production assistance and research provided by Oliver Hogg, and music by Chris J. Lee. Stephanie Wilner provides executive assistance.